Blink. Bloop. There are many levels. How are you doing, Justin? Well, I'm I'm doing good. I'm really happy to be alive, and I think I'm I'm you know if all things go well, I'm roughly halfway through my time on Earth, and I think. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've made mostly the best of it. That's, That's good. Uh, yeah, positive look. Yeah, thanks. What about you guys? How are you guys doing? I'm, uh, I, I'm hopefully more like a third of the way through. Uh, but, but similarly, um, I feel like I've uh, made the most of it so far. Yeah. It's worked out well. Excellent. Yeah. I've gotten married. I've managed to uh, have a couple of children, so the the uh, you know the line will continue, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> no, Theor- theoretically, I I hope it's a good thing. Yeah. Have you been watching Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones, or whatever? You're <laughs> you're interested in your lineage. Yeah. No, I actually uh, I have not watched Game of thrones which is probably i probably am banned from the internet now isn't that how yeah, that that's, works like, that's a deliberate act of resistance in today's media society i think <laughs> it's it's not deliberate so much as i just don't have hbo and i feel like i shouldn't steal things um and i and i haven't taken the time to just pay for it and sit down and start watching it so got it I I am I'm in the same boat. I for whatever reason I have like uh an allergic reaction to fantasy type um media. For for whatever reason I I can't get into anything with like swords and dragons. I don't know why. I, <laughs> I, I'm just mm. sci-fi through and through. So um it's just really interesting, like when people are like, "Oh my gosh, Three Hundred was the greatest movie ever." I'm just like, "Oh, okay." Well, that's like, not that's history. That's not fantasy, man. That's I, I true. That's it's true. true. It's true. What I, about I'm, is uh, Rise of Empire though? Is the second Three Hundred movie historical, truly, or I I don't know. I haven't looked at Wikipedia to, to know. <laughs> <the> <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I like that. That's the source of all knowledge. Yes. Do you, have you have either of you guys edited Wikipedia? I have not actually. I've I've come across articles where I feel like I would have a contribution to it, and then um, I quickly get distracted by a different article on Wikipedia. So, so you said you won't steal HBO, but somehow it's okay to just lurk on Wikipedia. <laughs> That's a very good point. That uh, is a I, good point. I honestly do feel sort of guilty at times when I take advantage of so many uh, as I'm adventuring towards uh, leaving Google and sort of researching other methods to find data uh, available in in an open way. I start to feel guilty like, oh, you know, if I'm going to join like open maps, then I really need to like participate, you know? Yeah. Wow. Um, How is that search for an alternative going? Well, um, I've basically bookmarked a lot of uh, things that I hope to share in a blog, and um, I haven't made a lot of real progress uh, otherwise because I'm sort of like, I'm the kind of person that, for whatever horrible reason, because... (laughs) uh, 
I am also similar to Paul who likes to change things frequency frequently, but I like to like lay everything out on the table and see where I'm headed before I jump in rather than probably be smart about it and say, okay, I'm going to stop using Google calendar and use this for a while. And then I'm going to stop using Gmail and use this for, you know, I'm going to go all in or I'm all out. So, yeah, but changing, changing your like core productivity apps is like a big investment of time and sort of right i don't know and potential overhead and stuff oh it is it is just um speaking as a programmer i i um you know i live in my text editor and my terminal all day and uh, switching either of those apps is it's not something that i'm necessarily uh loathe to do uh i've switched my text editor a number of times my ide a number of times but every time it's like you pay that price of learning curve, getting back to doing the things that you were used to doing in the other editor and hoping that you're making that change so that either you're getting a better supported product in this particular editor or that some of the other features are going to save you more time, like you're going to make up that time that you're losing in, in learning. Um, right. And when it's things like, you know, you're whether it's your contact app, your calendar app, just your mail app, the things that you use in, in uh, just to get your job done, that gets tricky. Well, you know, to the opposite of that, um, it's so glorious that day that you like open something up and you realize that you're inside of this particular application because it's like now second nature. <laughs> like all of that hard struggling to get you there, you know, like... <laughs> The first time, like, um, I probably, like, opened up, like, After Effects to do just, like, a simple title instead of using Final Cut. Like, I was like, why am I doing this in, oh, oh, this has become a habit for me now. Oh, yeah. well, that's not bad. This yeah. is a much nicer title anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah, good for you. I mean, that's a, that's a program with, I think, so much power to, you know, create fake reality. Yeah, After Effects, uh, what I like about After Effects, I was actually just reading um, something that uh, a link someone posted about uh, general interface design since uh, Google I.O. had just happened. And it was like sort of a rant about um, interacting with um, pieces of glass. And that's not how our hands were built. And it's sort of along the same lines. Like After Effects is like a tool it's not sort of like a suite of things that you can use. It's an actual tool. And it's very, when you open up After Effects, it's like sort of daunting because there's really not much there because it's a tool for you to use to make things. So, you know, it's it's sort of like comparing After Effects to, say, you know, some of these like uh, popular, like, um, image sharing apps on our phones like where you just hit a filter and now your photo looks beautiful it, it after effects doesn't do that <laughs> you know there are some tools in there to do that kind of stuff but for the most part it, it's all about your creativity and what you can do with these simple things and i find it sort of annoying when um what i would call bloat like a lot of applications just like sort of pile more things in there like look what else you can do here to try to uh, wean you away and get more people um where they don't keep it simple and i think 
Adobe has done a good job with After Effects and sort of like keeping it at its core. And it seems like every time they improve it, it seems to be improving like on the rendering side or some sort of sort of sort of activity that like is frustrating for users rather than adding like, oh, now you can make CD covers, you know, who makes CDs <laughs> anymore? <laughs> mm. So you haven't uh, delved into After Effects in your Justin Hall show adventures yet? Thank you for asking. I have not. And I think part of it is that uh, in 2004, I made a, a shift to the Macintosh after being a PC user for a while, and I made a shift to the Final Cut suite. And I kept up with that uh, even after they shifted to the new Final Cut software that some grizzled veterans of video <laughs> editing are rather grumpy about, uh, Final Cut 10. But I, uh, I tend to embrace new software. So we were discussing sure. comfort levels with different tools. And for me, I like seeing what people today think that good tools are. I mean, it's sort of like trusting software designers that, that the new will be better than the old. And there's an inherent optimism in that. And sometimes it goes awry. But in this, uh, you know, there's some video game remakes, for example, that, that, that did not do justice to their early, earlier counterparts. But in the case of Final Cut X, I found it to be easy and powerful and have a lot of stuff that I liked. But uh, it plays nice with a visual effects program called Motion, which is, much, which is suited to, you know, little bits of sort of animation and text and stuff, but not, I think, the wholesale transformation of reality that After Effects affords. And I just have not... Uh, I don't have the budget to buy the software, and I haven't gotten myself into exploring it yet. Yeah, Motion, um, I have very little experience, actually, with Motion. But, yeah, it's quite uh, it's quite a handy little uh, application in itself. So there's nothing wrong with that, for sure. Yeah, I, just, I love, you know, making and learning stuff. And somehow Final Cut and Motion is what I'm making and learning now. And then it, if... If it's not powerful enough to allow me to do visual effects, it forces me to do more stuff in front of the camera because if I tried to add visual effects to what I the stack of things I'm already learning, I feel like maybe 2015 <laughs> if I'm still making videos by then. Nice. Yeah, the uh what I what I like about uh watching the Justin Hall show is um I am just I feel like uh, I just graduated from university, which I guess isn't true, but <laughs> um, I feel like even then when we had like video cameras with mini DV tapes and we were just like, you know, this looks phenomenal. But then the minute you tried any sort of green screen effect with the mini DV camera, it was painfully apparent and you had to do a lot, a lot of work in post to make it look good where... If we did stuff like in the studio with TV cameras, it was like butter. Like, okay, green screen, there you go, boom, we're done. Mm -hmm. But with the video cameras, the the power just wasn't there. And now, you know, fast forward just a few years and Justin Hall is making like a show with his iPhone and using green screen and it looks great. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's kind of a miracle. And then I'm torn between saying like, well, this must be an apex. Like, where can we go from here? But... Um, on the other hand, you know, I think 
I don't know, I start to feel a little old. I think there's some native language of, of casual video that I'm a little too formal to speak. And when, you know, people are like, I tell people, what are you doing? People ask, what are you doing these days? And I say, I'm making uh, videos that I post on YouTube. And they say, are you a YouTube star? And I say, absolutely not. <laughs> my videos get, you know, I have a good day when my videos get in the high hundreds of views, you know, but the people who are native to YouTube and can post videos, I think they tend to be, they don't bother with green screens and After Effects. They sort of speak honestly or, or in some kind of character to the, the, the webcam directly. And it's actually this sort of interesting moment where it's never been easier to add effects to your videos. But a lot of the most popular videos don't really have a lot of effects in them. Sure. Right, it's sort of like content over sort of that kind of thing. So, hallelujah. Yeah, exactly. It's funny that you mentioned that because that was one of the things I kind of wanted to ask you because uh, you and I sort of come from that generation where, um, you know, uh, people of our generation or before, like they hated to even like have their picture on their driver's license, uh, you know, hiding our face when the camera comes out and stuff. And nowadays, <laughs> like the word selfie is in the dictionary. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's it's interesting just to hear you say you feel like sometimes you're a little bit formal because you've been sort of blogging forever <laughs> since mm. before blogging and sharing. So I was kind of wondering, like, you know, you've been sharing your life all this time. How do you sort of view this sort of uh, change and sort of the attitude of like it's okay i want to be on the camera i want people to see me hey that's that's a fun question i think there's some good to it because we get to see more humanity and i I had a sort of weird experience where I, i i used twitter and i realized that i could browse through twitter and i could find um people who are fighting for the creation of an islamic caliphate in northern iraq uh, and they are posting to Instagram and Twitter, and that through the same social network that I use are these young men who are talking about jihad in a most favorable light and using those same tools in English to to explain the things that make them happy and their motivations. And, and so I thought, oh, well, this is really interesting. People are really putting themselves out there, in, and this is what the tools are. And maybe we could build empathy, and, and they'll have more empathy for sort of decadent video makers from North America and I'll have more empathy for, you know, fundamentalist uh, utopians in, in uh, Northern Iraq. So there's, there's maybe some positive, but I think there's some, uh, there's some challenges, which is this sort of, you know, people act different when they have a camera pointed at them. In my experience, you know, if you pull out an obvious camera, people sort of begin to pose or they begin to turn away and, I think when you have the sense that there's constant opportunities to pose and you can't turn away, then maybe we've shifted into a different kind of consciousness, which, you know, as a a person with a few gray hairs somewhere in my blonde <laughs> head, I think, oh, well, maybe there's a, a, a decline in authenticity. But I, I think authenticity is something you can't ever measure and it's totally objective. I mean, it's totally subjective. So if you can't measure authenticity. We are definitely shifting into something that feels like a different way to carry yourself when everyone has a camera and people are accustomed to marking themselves in space and time with pictures and video that they curate for their social networks. 
everyone is like a little personal video picture maker and everyone has a policy on it. I mean, when you go out to a friend's birthday, it's sort of assumed that there will be some kind of mobile phone camera orgy at some point during the evening and you have a pre, you know, you have your decision about what you're going to do with it. And I think it's wonderful that all these things are cataloged and shared and, and promoted, but it's also probably a, a kind of psychic uh, load that we carry that we're not even entirely aware of. Maybe that's for the best. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a self-perpetuating thing. Like when you say it's sort of expected, you know, I mean, I think, I think you made a good point that, uh, you know, there are all these people from different venues of the world sharing their feelings. And then, you know, there is this sort of like subgenre or perhaps just <laughs> a regular, tremendously huge genre of people who are sort of maybe sharing for the wrong reason or creating like an identity to share. It's sort of like an egotistical sort of a thing rather than an open sort of sharing thing. Mm. So... Um, but I think it's just it's just the, the the thing we haven't really adjusted to. I feel like sometimes is that um, the internet, at least right now, is just so open that we're exposed to so much more at the very same time. You know, before like the content sort of controller was like the media, newspaper, and television. So you know, there could have been things happening that you just didn't know about because they weren't covered. And now we have all these channels where we can share, like YouTube. Yeah, and Vine and Twitter and Instagram. I mean, there's such a profusion of places to share. I'm curious, Christopher, about something you just mentioned, which is you drew a distinction between sort of open, honest sharing and then maybe sharing for the wrong reasons. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think the wrong reasons are. Um, I think... uh yeah, maybe wrong reasons was a strong wording, but I, I just feel like um, like the younger generation, and maybe this is just me being old and not completely understanding, but the younger generation sort of has these expectations um, like you were talking about, like, of course we're going to do like take a bunch of pictures of ourselves and we hang out and things like that. But I sort of feel like the, it's... It's sort of like a, a polished, like, I'm going to take this picture, right? Because I'm going to make the trademark duck face because that's the face you make. It, it's sort mm-hmm. of, uh, I don't want to say they're sharing for the wrong reasons, but it's it's kind of like I think I recently read somewhere, like someone said, of course you never believe like what someone's Facebook profile says about them because a lot of people if they're not completely open, they're just sharing what they want to share, which I guess we've done in the world even before the internet. Um, But I think it's just gets a little cloudy when there's people like yourself who are completely open. And then there's people who are maybe being uh, more controlling about what they're sharing. Like everyone on the internet is trying to have their own publicist, like sharing just certain details about them. Right. Yeah. Get their, Google search higher or more hits or more comments in their social networks. I guess that's yeah. sort of what I was alluding to. I feel that's, like that's the fascinating. Op- the openness, um, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I don't think that I need to have a webcam in my bathroom to be completely open, but I certainly can bring it there if I'm going to, you know, uh, be terribly upset and want to talk to someone. And maybe I will share in that kind of a way, but. 
Um, I think it's still my choice to do that. And um, now I lost where I was going with that. But yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I would I would maybe I think you bring up some good points that, you know, there's people who share a lot and people who share a little. I would as I mean, you I would draw a distinction not based on the quality of information that people share. You talked about some people being closed and some people, you know, sort of being, you, you, you said something, I think you meant to be nice about me that I was very open, but I think everyone's just running their highlight reel on the internet. And I ran my highlight reel in greater quantity. I think I'm not sure that you could say that I'm completely transparent because there's all sorts of things that aren't on in my web life. You know, and and so I put things like naked pictures of myself or some of my financial data or, you know, all sorts of things on the Internet that most people don't do. But I would suggest that maybe that's a difference of volume and not of not that I'm um, I just sort of do what everybody does. But I did a lot more because when people post photos of themselves on duck face, they're lying, you know, on the on, on the making a face on the web, they're sort of aligning themselves with a certain tribe. And I worked furiously to align myself with all sorts of tribes or my or create my own tribe or something. But it's all the same activity of humans sort of saying, hey, I, hey, look at me, I, I've got something to say. And, and I want to connect to other people. And I am. I, um, I think through my experience and having done some pretty silly stuff myself, I have come to be very forgiving for what most people do. And if it's some, if people share online and overshare, I tend to have sympathy for the the pain that might be making them reach out beyond what seems appropriate. But it's um, I wouldn't say that there are any worse or you know less trustworthy or something than 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 i was interesting that makes sense i can see that yeah i think there's um it's a it's easy to look at the whether it's the kind of content or the quality of content and whether or not you really um understand it or have sympathy sympathy or empathy for for that other person based on that content that you're looking at. I know it, having gone through this transition somewhat recently that there's like there was a a pre being a parent Paul that uh went on Facebook and saw lots of parents posting pictures of their kids and thinking at different times, like, ah, another picture of the kid, another picture of the kid, Sally's got a broken arm, so-and-so's got a skinned knee. And you keep seeing those things over and over, right? And you, it sort of, like, drowns. But these people are my friends, and it's Facebook, so I can't, like, do I mute them? How do I handle that? And then you become a parent, and you start posting pictures of your kid's skinned knees and their broken arms and their, you know, your trips to your to the emergency room or whatever because all of a sudden all of that stuff makes sense to you and it's important to you and you know that there are other people who you know, probably not everybody on my Facebook friends list particularly cares um I'm sure they care about me but they probably don't need to know every time you know I bring Amelia to the emergency room because she has an ear infection or something like that and yet I find myself putting it on there because there are other folks, parents, grandparents, um, other friends who have kids that age who just understand and you get a little bit of sympathy. So I think a lot of times it's people 
looking to make a connection with other people who who maybe do that same thing or have that same interest or understand that same situation. And even if it feels like, um, oh, this person's only doing it to maybe grab some attention or, or get some, um, well, basically, yeah, grab some attention, sometimes they kind of deserve that attention or they're putting it there because they need a little bit of, like, positive reinforcement, you're doing the right thing, everything's going to be okay, you know, we're, we're your friends here on the internet, um, get rid of the trolls, you know. Paul, um, I, when you that's fascinating. When you talk about the transition, um, I am not a parent, and my feed is filled with children. And I wonder if you changed what you posted about yourself. Now you you, you have the addition of content that that is about your kids and and that life you have. But did it change the things you wanted to tell the world about your own inner life? Uh, it did, and I, I think it's because, um, I mean, it's a, it's a transformative experience to become a parent, um, but, uh, and <laughs> there are lots and you probably hear that from everybody who is a parent, like, oh, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to settle down and get married and have a couple of kids? And um, I remember hearing that a lot. Um, my mother wanted me to have kids like three days after I graduated from high school because she wanted grandbabies, so... Um, but then it does sort of change, it changes your priorities. Like it changes everything that you, how you look at everything is now kind of around the idea that, oh, I want to take my children on these vacations so they can see these great things about the world that I've seen. I want to share that experience with them. Um, and then I also want to take that experience I'm sharing with them and share the fact that I'm sharing it with them with other people, um, because mm -hmm. it, it gets me so excited to see this person, you know, seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time or Mackinac Island or whatever that great thing is. Um, I, my kids are too young to be having those experiences quite yet, but these are the things that, you know, I'm looking forward to. And frankly, I'm looking forward to posting pictures about them on Facebook too, <laughs> just because <laughs> I feel like that's going to be fun. Yeah. But here's one question, Paul, aren't, if you post photographs of your children online, aren't, are you, you are creating their digital identity for yeah. them as opposed to allowing them to do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That is, um, that's something that already I, um, it, you know, struggle with, like as a, I, I've thought about like, okay, do I go to Twitter and get my daughter's name as a handle so that she can have it when she's old enough to start tweeting? Is she even going to care? Like, is Twitter going to be a thing that people are using when she's old enough to think that it's interesting same thing with like facebook and then beyond that like do i just get them not do anything with them because i don't want to do something in my child's name like she they do need to create their own identities and they have every right to that so um i do try to take care um i think it's probably ironic that with all their privacy concerns that i post these things on facebook but i try to be super careful about what my settings are on Facebook, what my privacy settings are, so that when I am posting those things and sharing those things, I'm sharing them with uh, my friends and my family and not the general public. Um, 
because you're right. Uh, I don't want to be just kind of putting stuff out there um, that they are going to feel is theirs in you know in ten years. You know, social media may become the next the next new way that parents tell embarrassing stories about their kids, <laughs> and they well, do it in real time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's interesting, kind of uh, what you were both talking about. I feel like we all make changes, you know, and we're always evolving. And because we have this uh, relatively new media to share these things on, um, uh, it happens instantaneous. And yet sort of, this is a rather long jump, but sort of our experience with media in the past has been sort of a culture of sound bites. So, you know, I could probably easily go back on Facebook and say, like, look right here, Paul, you wrote, like, I'm really sick of all these people posting pictures of their kids, and now (laughs) you're doing it. You know, it's it's sort of like some some people, and maybe it's just, you know, and again, it's probably just what they're evolving through, and they're not in a very good mood, but some people sort of focus on these sort of things, like, and make them permanent, and so it's like, well this internet and our social media is ever evolving. And so, you know, Justin makes a good point about having some empathy for people instead of like maybe condemning them for behaving certain ways online, because, you know, we're always constantly evolving and this is just a a different way to document it. Yeah. And I think what one way that I had to evolve is that when I first started my website, I just wrote about all the people I knew because I thought I want to tell, I want to, it was fun to describe the world and the people in the world. And then as more people got online and began searching for their names, I had created those records for them. And so they weren't my kids. I wasn't, they were just my friends, but, but they, you know, a lot of them said, Hey, look, we had, I had a good time being friends with you, but I never thought that being friends with you meant that you were describing me in a place where I would prefer to describe myself. Yeah, that's, that's uh, not a fun situation. Yeah, that's right. And so I had to evolve and now everybody gets a chance to describe themselves and you can see sites like Facebook inventing tools to allow you to sort of control and throttle how other people are allowed to describe you and who can see what you say. And so, uh, you know, I was very excited in the early days of the web that everyone might have a public homepage and live totally transparently so that you could really get some empathy into people that you didn't know very well or people that you thought weren't very cool. You could sort of read about them and read about their struggles and, and get a better sense of who they are and maybe develop some some sense of sympathy or empathy with them. and that now instead we've all sort of maybe gone into these tools where it's less about empathy and more about showcasing articles in public and photos in private, which I guess I feel a little sad about because I had this utopian vision for the web, but uh, it's it's nice that we have these, you know, global communications tools. And, you know, it's so funny to imagine that you would go online and save a Twitter handle for your daughter that with the idea that in 12 years anyone – that the internet would look anything like it is now. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> of what it looked like 12 years ago. Oh my God. It's uh, – what I found fascinating earlier in the week, I was actually going to send this to you, Justin, and then um, – 
just uh, knowing your connection to the web, uh, I just happened to scroll through some of your tweets, and you actually retweeted someone who had posted this uh, video as well. Um, but that uh, video about um, internet fame using Phil Fish as an example was completely fascinating to me. The way that sort of he's been vilified and yet like there are probably people listening and honestly I didn't know who he was until I watched the video. So it's sort of interesting that there's this tremendous sort of like uh, you know, mem kind of culture, like instant, like you're a hit um, thing that lives and breathes in the internet. It's like we don't, we no longer have like 15 minutes of fame. You have 15 seconds. <laughs> and, yeah, and, it, you, and you, you sometimes it can backfire yeah. on you, like uh, sort of Phil Fish. But then it really didn't backfire because, again, it's just sort of this smaller, tighter community that knows who he is. Yeah, and I don't know what his goals are. You know, I mean, does he is he sad that he stopped making video games? Is he happy to be, you know, now a professional gardener or whatever else he's doing? I I I don't know what the sort of postscript to his career is after he sort of flamed out in public. But this this potential that anyone has to reach an audience beyond what they imagine just by being themselves online and doing some light performance through social media anyone can be amplified and the every time you tweet there's the potential for you know 40 million people to somehow decide that you said the thing at the time and place that it needed to be said and then you you'll be forgotten just as swiftly and i think there's something that ephemerality is kind of encouraging because you know it just reminds you that all this stuff in the universe is temporary and just like the fame on the internet it'll come and go and you can't build anything upon it, um, but you can try and be good and, and have people leave smiling when they read your situation. So, uh, Phil Fish, just to follow up on that thread, uh, I had heard this uh, recently because I listened to um, oh a podcast about gaming whose name I can't remember all of a sudden. Um, but they were uh, talking about he's kind of popped back up again on Twitter, uh, and he has uh, his company, the Poly Polytron Corporation, uh, is now working, although he's not personally writing any games, he's actually trying to help uh, indie um, game producers uh, get their, get their uh, games made. And so he's working with some uh, some indie game game developers right now um, to uh, help them get a game finished, which I think is mm. uh, uh, kind of an interesting um, an interesting way for him to kind of get back into things. Apparently, he has some kind of controversial opinions about, uh, and this actually kind of dovetails into our our conversation a little bit. Um, he has some uh, opinions about uh, YouTube revenue sharing and how um, the gaming platforms like um, or game recording platforms like Twitch, um, you know, recording your gameplay and then sharing that with other people on uh, YouTube. Well, there's a there's a 
a huge market of people who record their gameplay and record themselves kind of talking over top of it, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style, and then um, release that on the internet. And there's a ton of people who watch these videos, and yet the game producers, who certainly have a hand in making that content, um, do not see any YouTube revenue sharing. And uh, Phil apparently expressed an opinion that this is uh, kind of a complicated subject, um, but he thinks that somehow that revenue sharing should get split with the original developers of the game so that they can, um, you know, recapture that and funnel it into the making of the next game or, you know, what, whatever their financial structure is. That's, that's sort of fascinating. The model that jumps to mind is sort of like ASCAP and BMI so that, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can sing, you know, John Denver's um, Country Road or whatever, and uh, but you have to pay him a royalty in order to sort of perform it. So if you want to perform Assassin's Creed in public, you have to pay, you know, Ubisoft a royalty. All right. That's, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, that's definitely something that I... It's one of those things that I always struggle with because I certainly have zero answers for, but it just seems like uh, copyright in our w- new world, it, it doesn't work anymore. So, because we have this sort of remixed culture that really does make some really great things. And um, so, I, but I understand everybody needs to get paid as well. So, it's just a really a complex situation at times. Yeah. So, how do you guys monetize Montreal sauce? <laughs> we don't. We we make this out of the out of the uh, goodness of our hearts. Um, it's sort of like a, a, a charity. <laughs> yeah, you could you could call it that. A charity. And then you make you probably, make up the you make the money on t-shirts. Yeah, we we uh, it's it, it, we sell it for nothing, but we make it up on volume. I think is right. <laughs> 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 We're. Uh, we we just use it as a tax write off. I I have seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars in equipment I'm sitting in front of right now. Excellent. Sure, that's it. Yeah, I mean that's not to say we joke about this, but that's not to say that something like sponsorship isn't on the table for Montreal Sauce someday. But we also have to get our listenership. I mean, you talked about it with you know numbers of YouTube. Uh, watches and stuff like that. We we'd have to get our number of listeners to a point where um, you know it would be worth a uh, a sponsor's time in in chatting with us. Um, but I'm sure when we when we do, we'll probably be sponsored by Squarespace because I think they basically sponsor all of the podcasting medium at this point. I mean, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's right. I've practiced the ad read on here before just to, you know. Yes. I mean, it's sort of interesting. It's like you you could bootstrap that yourself by sort of like just doing ads for people without them asking and then sort of playing the podcast back and saying like, you know, you're already getting amazing exposure, but it could go wrong (laughs) if you don't. (laughs) I guess that'd be slightly extortionary or something. Right, right. I was actually thinking of this the other day. I was like, you know, sometimes I feel like I was trying to like, uh, like most of my thoughts these days, because I'm terribly long winded. um, Most of my thoughts these days, I then try to funnel into the 140 characters for Twitter to have my fame. And uh, I couldn't come up with something or I just 
lost the thought and went on to something else. But I was like, there's there's too many people right now who are, you know, when we you see those things in your feed on Twitter and Facebook, like repost this to get in the drawing to win. And I'm like, you know, that's wrong. Like the advertisers should be giving us things if we say stuff about them. It shouldn't be the other way around. <laughs> like this is my feed, okay? So if I say, boy, this Coca-Cola is delicious, I think a Coke person on Facebook should say, I'm really glad you said that, Chris. I'm going to send you like a six-pack. What's your address? It shouldn't be like, oh, I have to retweet your brand message so that I may get a chance to win an iPad. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, what picture, if you will, some 26-year-old, you know, marketing studies graduate at, you know, Coca-Cola's, you know, southeastern states advertising <laughs> agency who's asked to come up with like six social media moving strategies and they're just trying everything they can, you know, and and if people will participate then they win i was on uh, a social network today where people were complaining about some video game that offered in-app purchases so you you get the game for free but then if you want to unlock higher levels or greater powers you have to pay some money and my friends were complaining that they hated these sorts of games and they didn't see why anybody liked them and the and i you know the funny thing is you know there's a, there's enough people who don't mind that that's a fine strategy for a big company. And so yeah. we mingle together in these social networks with people who have very different tastes or very different relationships to brand. But, you know, we we may be more literate media consumers or more reserved. Uh, you know, we don't we, we're not sluts with our feed. But um, that doesn't mean that we're right or that those companies won't prevail by by you know, sort of getting other people to be their mouthpieces. And furthermore, you know, if you decided that Montreal sauce was the secret to the future of media, you might get very, you know, determined and crafty and and do those things that you object to in order to get other people to share the news about the hard work you're doing. It's very I'm not true. meaning to suggest that you are gentlemen of low morals, but just, <laughs> you know, if you want to succeed, you'll try a lot of things. Thank you. I, actually, that's going to be on my business card. Gentlemen of low morals. <laughs> but gentlemen, nonetheless. I know. That's why I like it. Sort of, <laughs> the juxtaposition is wonderful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say just um, for... For promotional purposes, I I have my um, I have my app on the App Store and uh, called Typey Typey, and I also have a page on Facebook, which I have of course invited all of my friends and everybody whose contact information I possibly have in Facebook to like, so that it gets some kind of um, you know <laughs> it gets some kind of number of likes, whatever measurable that really gets you. Facebook actually does, it's like an achievement thing. Facebook actually unlocks certain things if your page gets a certain number of locks, likes. So then you can see more analytics about your page, which I find interesting. Um, so they, of course, are encouraging you to get likes as well. Um, but then separately from that, I actually, just to see what would happen, and as an experiment, I bought uh, ads on Facebook as well. And Facebook, of course, has the 
super fine targeted ads, right? Because they know for most of the people who are on Facebook, they know roughly how old they are. They know their gender. They know whether or not they have kids. They know, um, you know, where they live, where, where did they go to high school or college? So there's all this crazy demographic information that as an advertiser, I'm able to take advantage of and actually fine tune my ads to only appear in front of parents um, who have kids, because my app is a kid-focused app, and who um, who have specifically uh, iOS devices, because it's an app for iOS. Um, so I know at that point that that ad is in front of somebody who theoretically um, could take advantage of it, right? Um, and what I would... The lesson that I learned was that those ads are expensive and it doesn't actually end up being worth it based on how much money I was making off of my app. But I did get a bunch of exposure and I got a ton of analytics. So that's one of those things where like so-and-so from Coca-Cola has posted this thing and they want you to retweet it. And the lesson that they are going to get from that is like this serotonin rush of things lighting up all over their Radiant 6 dashboard that tells them that tons of people are retweeting this. And it costs them one iPad for one of them, right? I mean, to them, that's like, those are effective results. This is working. And it cost us $600. You know, but the... The funny thing is the level of engagement is so low for those people and the, the people who retweet it. I mean, it's just a yeah. click, and I don't think there's a lot of loyalty. And I think that's really the challenge for an independent person who's spending their own money to promote their own little project is, you know, you spend, you know, 50 cents a click to get people to try and download typey typey. Yep. But you have no – because you're dealing with Facebook or Twitter and Apple – you have no way to know, oh, every, you know, if I if I write this ad, six people download it out of every 100. If I write this other ad, 20 yeah. people download it out of every 100. You have no transparency between those systems that allows you to be thorough about, right. you know, how you spend your money, which I find so such a loss, you know, because yeah. there's so all that data is there, but the, those people are not allowed to talk to each other. Right. And what I what I was able to so from that analytics perspective, um, Facebook will tell you what your click through rate is. They have to because that's how you're paying them, right? That's right. Um, and you can put certain analytics on your site. So I have Google Analytics on typeytypey.com, which is what I had them kind of clicking through to get to the App Store. Um, so I was able to see okay who's following the ad to my website, and then and then going through to um, the App Store. Um, and then Facebook, of course, in order for you to close the loop and see how many installs you got, um, you have to install the Facebook framework into your app and actually deploy your app with Facebook's framework in it so that Facebook can light up and send a ping to Facebook server and tell it that your app got installed. So now Facebook's getting all these great analytics about how often your app gets used and <laughs> how often are they opening it. And the benefit that you get as the developer is I get to see if my click-through actually led to an app install. And I oh, know so they actually do tell you. They can tell you if you, in, if you integrate their framework into your app. And if your users decide that somehow their childhood typing app is something that's worth signing into Facebook for. 
Yeah, I don't even know if they need to sign into Facebook. I think it can actually okay. use the like advertiser ID and just it can do an initial ping without having to 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 do a sign in. I think, um, but I did uh-huh. not actually implement it because I felt like. AI had already just recently pushed an update, so I didn't really feel like pushing another update <laughs> and going through that whole process with Apple. And B, uh, I just didn't feel like that metric was going to be worth it, seeing as I knew how many people were going through to my website and I knew how many of those people were getting, you know, clicking the go to the app store. And then based on that, I also know, you know, roughly what my sales are. So I can, I can g- gauge the effectiveness well enough, I felt. So mm. if okay. I was doing a bunch of ads in a bunch of places, that would be a lot more complicated. And I would want to close that loop so I know which campaign is effective, right? But I'm doing a single campaign um, and I have a single website and a single product. So it's easy enough to kind of glean things just based on the numbers that you see. Got it. Oh, Hi. Hi, Chris. There was a pause there, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. I uh, I just realized that, uh, you know, what is it, like 50 minutes in and we never actually like officially introduced Justin or let him introduce himself. <laughs> we just jumped right into it. Yeah. That's true. how we do it at Montreal Sauce. That's very true. It's true. We barely introduce ourselves. So that that adds to the anonymity. So yeah. so Justin, uh who are you and uh what are you passionate about right now? Uh so <laughs> I'm a white North American male uh living in San Francisco and I was born in Chicago and I have been really grateful to have access to technology for a lot of my life and it's given me the chance to meet people and entertain myself and express myself and over the course of you know 39 years I've been able to write and draw pictures and make videos and make video games and do all these things uh, through technology or you know employing technology Today, I'm very passionate about making videos. I used to work in video games, and that was fun, although seeing inside the sausage factory of video games can be a little <laughs> disillusioning when you sort of envision art and empathy and the purposes of media being essentially spiritual. Uh, that's a far cry from trying to pay the bills. Yeah. So yeah. I managed to save some money. I got lucky to work for a successful company for a while. So I quit my job and now I am making independent personal films that I post mostly on YouTube or other free places on the internet. And the film I'm working on now is a sort of look at what it's been like to be an active participant in web publish in personal web publishing for about 20 years. And it's my job. It's also my art. I do it from home. So I think I'm allowed to be passionate about it. It's completely self-directed at the moment. I'm doing everything from the writing, the filming, the editing, the scoring, the, I mean, not writing the music, but laying the music down. And, and so I love the immersion of all that. Although sometimes I miss working with other people. 
So I think in a few months I'll be passionate about finding other people to work with in some new thing. But for now, I'm very excited to be alone in my laboratory. <laughs> I was I was actually gonna um, suggest that to you. Just um, you hear that a lot in the bigger uh, film world, where you know they say maybe you shouldn't uh, edit your own material. Um, or at least collaborate a lot more because like sometimes like if you're like a really great auteur and you make something and people like it, you're success. But otherwise, if you're the auteur and it fails, it's because you didn't, you know, let go of some of the reins. And personally, just my personal experience, um, uh, actually because, uh, what happens in my career is, uh, Paul intervenes. And so, um, one of the first mm. things that I ever edited that I had not actually shot was, uh, some interviews that Paul had shot and I was, it felt really great. Like I thought, Whoa, you know, I don't know any of this material and it actually, I think it, it came together pretty well, and it, I'm sure it didn't come together like Paul thought it would come together. But I, I think um, for me, that was really freeing to maybe like spend 100% of my energy on the edit and telling the story instead of like doing the lights and the sound and the camera work mm. and all of that stuff. And so um, it was really interesting. And then, of course that was my very first experience of uh, just working on some material that I hadn't been involved in 100% until the edit post-production. And then, of course, there are those times later on in my uh, work life where I got some footage from clients and said, okay, I can't do anything with this because <laughs> I didn't do this. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. so there's definitely two sides of that street. But yeah, collaboration definitely makes things better, I will say. So, yeah, so I think what I do is I ask people to watch and then tell me what they think, but I think that's different than sort of inviting another cook into your kitchen. Yeah, my um, my my first experience with something similar to that, um, so if you can't tell, Chris and I are both film and video grads, um, and uh, my first experience with it uh, where I was really editing something that I had not shot was on... Um, one of the uh, summer film projects that I uh, worked on, which is something they do at uh, Grand Valley State University every summer. They do a summer film project, and it's kind of divided into two classes. And the first class is um, people who actually participate in the filmmaking process where they're shooting everything. They're, you know, they do the auditions, they get the actors, they do the shoots, uh, and they produce all of the footage and audio. Um, and then that class is over and the second class starts and the second class is the folks who signed up to do, to be involved in the edit, um, and post-production. Ah. Um, and you, there's nothing that keeps you from signing up from signing up for both. Um, but, uh, the way that I worked it the first year that I was in the film project, I signed up for the post-production class. And then the second year I signed up for the product pre-production and production class, um, so I kind of did them in reverse order and worked on two mm. different films that way, which was interesting. Um, 
and I got the opportunity um, to be the uh, lead editor in that post-production class. So um, it, it is a really interesting um, experience to, you know, and at the time, nonlinear editors, um, we were using Media 100, which is um, an absolute antique, and you had to manually, they called it ingesting or digitizing all of the footage, um, and and a lot of it was some of it was analog and most of it was digitally resed um, actual sixteen millimeter film that they shot, um, and you get to see all of this stuff come together, but you have to watch every single take because you have no idea what <laughs> which take is going to be the good take. Um, you might have, if you're lucky, you might have like the shooter's notes that have things marked like, oh, the director liked this one when we were on set. Uh, and what I find is the director's instinct on set, at least with this particular film, was more like 50-50. Like half of mm. the ones that he liked on set, we used. Half of the ones that he liked on set, we ended up not using. And he, the director's very much a part of the editing process. So he's sitting there going back, looking at these takes and going, you know what, I do actually like this other one better, just the delivery and how the film comes together. Um, and and I think for the director who is kind of following it through the entire process, getting all of those other people involved, both in the production and the post-production phases, um, helps him create the best product because it kind of keeps the director honest in terms of, is he really seeing what he thinks he's seeing? Is he telling the story the way that he wants, uh, in a way that's effective? Maybe it may not end up being the way that he originally wanted to tell the story, but if it's the way that effectively tells the story, then you're getting a better film. So, I mean, yeah, that I being, just, what's sorry, that? I was I was just gonna say that being said, you're you're telling a very personal story uh, of your own, Justin. So, I mean, the idea that you have of having people watch it and getting their take from it is probably. Uh, very good too just because you know that feedback can see you know you obviously have a goal when you edit something together and if that feeling's not coming out then maybe you need to rearrange it or maybe what they're seeing is something you hadn't thought of before so i mean i wasn't uh discounting what uh you're doing um i just thought uh you know you're telling a much more personal story and some of these uh other projects are are a little bit not similar to that yeah, I was going to say, I just read a book called When the Shooting Stops, the Cutting Begins about uh, this sort of editor's memoir about his relationships with other directors. So, <laughs> Paul, to what you were just saying, I think there's many different types of directors and, and the men and women who direct films, some of which some of them come from backgrounds where they're, they're not at all accustomed to having to then assemble the footage and some of them come from assembling footage. In my case... Chris, I think the reason that I one of the reasons I haven't solicited contributors directly um, uh, for my project is just the personal nature of the material too. So I'm telling a personal story, yes, also, but I feel a little weird just asking somebody to look at my face that much, and, and there's no and there's no money in it. So it's not like, yeah. oh hey, I'm going to pay you ten grand because you got to look at my face for five months. It's like. Um, nobody else is going to make this film. Nobody cares. I, sometimes I barely care, um, and it's my story. So I really um, – and that's part of why I've set a time limit on it too because um, there's just 
you know, I've, I want to make something compelling, broadly applicable, tell my story that might be, you know, give some hint of what was happening around me at the time, but not linger too long. And, and um, I guess if, if I was, um, yeah, I just, I'm trying to think of other examples. There's the film Tarnation that I actually haven't seen, but that a, a young man assembled himself from personal media that was well acclaimed. But, um, you know, the, the other examples of personal documentary are like, you know, Uncle Leo's wedding video that he made for the the young couple or, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the um, the woman who edits together all the, the, the pageants that her, her son has been in at Christmas time or something. I mean, that, I'm somewhere in between those things. Yeah, I'm trying to think there's one. I, it's, it's always funny because the veil of uh, the veil of the camera, you don't, you're, you're seeing what people want you to see, but there's one that I watched a while ago and it was, it was seemed quite personal anyway, but um, it was about uh, a young man who who was like going back to his ex girlfriends and you know asking about how good he was in bed. It was um, sort of humorous, but also like sort of hurting. But yeah, that was very that, and that was a documentary. Like he actually took the right. camera and said, yeah. "Wow." Yeah, yeah, and he went to former, you know, exes and said, you know, so was I good? What was wrong with our relationship? And, you know, and then he, I think he stopped making the film for a while because it was sort of bringing him down. But, it's, it's yeah. a, that's a super downer, but it, it is also learning in public, you know? I mean, right. maybe there's totally. some young person who's going to watch that and say, oh, that's what it's like to be in a relationship or that's the type of thing that people don't like. I mean, that could be a valuable service, actually. Hmm. So, uh, I uh, this is just a strange question, but um, what's uh, what's San Francisco like? Because I feel like, again, sort of the media stream that's coming into <laughs> a lot of our feeds is like Google is the evil empire, and they, you know, it cost you like six thousand dollars for a slice of bread there or something. I don't know. What? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So, I first came here when I was a young, like, uh, like ten year old or something, because my sister lived here. So that would have been like in the mid eighties, and I loved the city because there was just a general sense of pageantry about it that you're, you know, more likely than I've ever seen any other city walking around to see a wizard just on the streets of San Francisco. Um, there's a sort of, you know, higher probability of costuming than there was in, in Chicago where I grew up. And so <laughs> I just love that sort of whimsicalness. And I think what a lot of people who've lived here and built their lives here fear is that the, the extreme wealth, so the extreme wealth might drive out some of that art, casual art practice. But, you know, it's funny because the extreme wealth around technology here is you could argue is an outgrowth of the creative culture and that because San Francisco was a place where people went to get away from old structures and get away from old expectations and make new communities and make new lifestyles that that led to a high concentration of people who were experimental and that willingness to be experimental made it a great place to launch you know all these 
companies that are attempting to rig up new ways to interact with people. And that software is sort of maybe a natural outgrowth of the, you know, sort of people who came here to build houses where lots of people flopped in together and lived for free and, you know, went to the Diggers Free Store on Haight Street and all the things that it was known for in the 60s, right? If we were having this podcast somehow 40 years ago uh, or 50 years ago and you were like, what's it like in San Francisco? And I'm like, well, there's a free store and there's like, you know – tour buses driving by looking at the hippies and i mean now it's sort of like we've got eight dollar slices of toast and you know drone delivery of burritos and all this sort of hyperbole crazy stuff which is true but it also still exists amidst people who are trying to make new types of art practice or make new types of living together the saddest thing i can tell you guys is that many of my creative friends are getting priced out of the urban center of the city because the rent is just going up and there's a beautiful preservationist tradition that's made the city look Victorian and stuff, but it's also like, um, you know, kept there from being like tons of housing. So, and, and keeps it affordable. So it's, uh, you know, it's a mixed bag. I, 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 you know, I, I um, remember getting mugged at gunpoint in the Bay Area uh, many years ago, and so there are parts that are not safe. But you know, over time, it becomes more boring and more safe. And um, you know, I remember trying to score uh, weed or LSD in Times Square in New York in the '90s, and it was like a crazy place to be, you know, a young uh, psychedelic explorer and to get yourself in trouble. And now <laughs> New York is like permanent Disneyland in the center of the city. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I mean, I think you can have mixed feelings about all these things and there's no easy answer. Right. I, I kind of, I think I've either discussed that here or ranted about it before, but I sort of, it seems like um, our cities become cyclical in that way. Like right now, Detroit is in so much pain and so much trouble, but the only way that it's going to dig its way out is by the community working together, people working together like the hippies did like 50 years ago. And then Detroit will rise again and then it will be like, you know, it'll probably bloat again and then fall. And, you know, it's just cyclical, I feel, in most of those cases. Yeah, although if the community doesn't band together, the land could also be purchased by extremely wealthy people and somehow a bunch of people who aren't in the community could come there and like build some fake new Detroit policed by cyborg human cops, you know. <laughs> so very true. Yes. I think I've had that dream as well, maybe three or four times. Chris, is that where you live? I, I do not. I actually, my story is actually very connected to our guest today. Um, I am from West Michigan. Um, the Muskegon is where I grew up. What, well, that's near Grand Rapids, which is near where Paul lives because we went to the same university together and mm. met there. But um, uh, after my university days, I um, did a lot of freelance here and there and got jobs from that Paul didn't no longer need. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and throughout my adventures, I started playing this uh, strange experimental game in my browser called PMOG mm. that you are, were in it quite involved in. And in that game, I met a woman and uh, we chatted pretty much every day playing the game or not. And 
eventually I married her and she was from Canada. So I am coming to you live from Edmonton, Alberta now. I moved here to be with her. Hey, congratulations. That's a good story. Yeah, it. Uh, I know that uh, there's a lot of uh, good stories in that community that sort of came out of uh, PMOG and the Nethernet. And I know there's some hardships as well, but they're all learning. But yeah, we have a good story. It's pretty great. And I still keep in contact with uh, lots of people. So, Yeah, and isn't that interesting? Because as you said, it's all cyclical. Like there's rises and falls. And I mean, I came of age in computers when M- Microsoft bestrode the earth as a titan and, and everyone <laughs> quivered and, and, and with expectation at their every new product announcement. And, and now they are literally the, the butt of so many jokes. And, and to, to imagine, I, I like to, as a thought exercise every now and then, just imagine a, a post-Facebook or post-Google world when we look upon Facebook as we, as we do look upon Friendster or MySpace and what would come to pass to make those things have a similarly sort of antiquated and and sort of you know faded air about them because i feel it's sort of inevitable i mean the one thing that i haven't gotten over is it hasn't happened to mcdonald's yet but it's only 50 years old and as a as a brand institution perhaps the catholic church is the oldest one in the western world and and they've had some real brand problems recently so i think it's um, it's fascinating to to remember how cyclical all those things are, and, and that the things that come out of them are little human communities that then go seed other things. So it's this game we made called PMOG was not a success in the commercial realm, and it's no longer extant, and people don't play it. But wow, somebody might you know meet other people that they then make something new with, and that's about as good as I could hope. Oh yeah, definitely. Um... I, I don't even, I just, I, we often talk about it because we just don't even, we can't even fathom like how that all came together because it just seemed to be, I mean, I think we remember it with sort of glossy eyes because we um, forget maybe some, some bad apples or some people who are having a tough time or, or not getting along with others in that community, but um for the most part, it just feels like it just came together. And so I've got some really great friendships uh, from all over the world because of that game. And um, so it's definitely close to my heart when we talk about it, me and my wife. Well, thank you. I will say that, um, for example, if you guys run Montreal Sauce and invest in it and make something that you put your hearts into and then you build a forum and you invite people to go into the forum and people are chatting with each other and you're at it long enough, you too will see new relationships and people who will say, gosh, I remember the, the thing that brought us together was this media moment of these people trying to make something new and and have a conversation about what was possible in public. There's something timeless about people, you know, meeting other people through any chance they can find. And you happen to find someone who maybe was sorted for literacy or games or Internet curiosity um, or, you know, sort of information adventuring, uh, you know, maybe the game was a sorting mechanism for those types of people to find each other. It's interesting to think what the audience for Montreal sauce is sorted for. And, and if those people meet each other at Montreal sauce con in three years, (laughs) what will they, you know, what will they 
look at each other and see in common. I really hope we have a Montreal Sauce Con in, in the next couple of years. That would be awesome. <laughs> it, could be, it could start with just the two of you. It probably would start with just the two of us. No, but. my mom would be there. Oh, see, there you go. <laughs> I mean, I think if we, I think if we could locate it in the right place and time it with a, you know, somebody's vacation, probably everybody's vacation, so that it could, <laughs> everybody could be in the same place at once. Um, we could, we could fill a small room with ten or twelve people, probably. Excellent. Excellent. I think I have to drop the connection at this point to put food in my face with my lady. No worries. We really appreciate you being here. Great yeah, conversation. Appreciate- yeah, thank you for inviting me, and maybe we'll chat again somewhere someday. That yeah, would be, be excellent. I'm, I'm really glad you took the time that you did, so thanks a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm flattered by the invite and excited to see what you guys make. And I'm excited to see the movie when you're finished, and uh, I will definitely keep watching the Justin Hall show. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, you're, you are planning on premiering that at XOXO, is that right? If they'll have me. <laughs> if, they, if they will have you, that, would be, yep. that will be excellent. We will look forward to that. Thank you so much, yeah. We shall see. And, uh, yeah, I'll keep my eye peeled on Typey Typey and Montreal Sauce and beyond. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. You can Cheers. be a guest, a guest speaker at uh, Montreal SauceCon. Yes. Hey, all right. Yeah. We'll give <laughs> you the keynote. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Justin. We appreciate it. Okay. Take care, you guys. Have fun out there. Yeah, you Enjoy too. your meal. Thank you. Blink. Bloop.